Lord Mayor and friends, it's such a very great pleasure to be back again, and I must thank you for that very, very warm welcome. May I immediately congratulate the choir and uh, pay tribute to their, their, their master. <laughs> and I think uh, the very first event we attended, Sabine and I, after my inauguration in 2011, was the Choral Festival here in Derry. And uh, what a, a great event it was. But aware of the as I said, may I, I have begun by expressing my gratitude to the 50th Anniversary Civil Rights Commemoration Committee for their very generous invitation to attend and address this festival today. As President of Ireland, it is a very great honour to join you all in commemorating what is indeed one of the great movements for justice and civic equality on our island, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement, on this, the 50th anniversary of what was one of the most important events and remains in the history of our island in the 20th century. The civil rights march that took place in this great city on the 5th of October, 1968. I've come north many times in the last seven years to give different papers on not just the past, but also on where we are now. And in doing so, I've been ma making an appeal, if you like, for ethical commemoration. Remembering is an action that is putting people back. Commemorating is making a choice, and in making a selection, a choice. Amnesia is not available as an option to any involved in the exercise. I think we have come as far as recognising that now. But I think, as well, I've been speaking, I remember, in Corimila and elsewhere, about how do we go on and face into the future. In one of my speeches, I said, the ability to hold together a forgiving consciousness of the past and an openness to the potentialities of the future, forging the alliance of pardon and promise. This is the essential imperative for our living together in harmony and cohesion on this island. As Hannah Arendt has suggested to us, the faculty to forgive guarantees our freedom from the harsh rule of the past, but without an ability to promise the present would be dominated by uncertainties and fears, the future unforeseeable. Forgiveness is a cornerstone in our construction of hope, but it must be a forgiveness informed by understanding of the importance of accepting difference. And in achieving that, I have suggested, amnesia is of no value to us. We have to transact and transact ethically. And over those past seven years, when I've had the opportunity to speak at commemorations, marking the centenaries of some of the formative events of the preceding century, it has been a pleasure to see those who have been welcomed back into the story in history, but particularly to hear the stories and experiences of individuals, communities, and movements 
as they recalled and made their diverse interpretations of these events, became involved, if you like, in the construction or revision of collective memory. The social and economic forces with which communities contended and which they sought to shape have received a diversity of interpretations. Across this island, these commemorations have facilitated, I suggest, if not a wholesale reevaluation of the past, but after a re-engagement with our collective history, we have made some progress. However, the role of economic forces, of exclusions, still get a weak emphasis, and thus the possibility of recognising those upon whom to quote the great Edward Thompson, the enormous condescension of history has fallen. Women, workers, rural labourers, they have yet to get sufficient space in the narrative. Some of the moments we have been recalling were of course foundational for the political traditions on our island, whether nationalist, unionist, socialist or feminist. The Solemn League and Covenant, the 1913 lockout, the 1916 rising, the struggle for women's suffrage. Others were experienced in common by all who lived on this island at that time, such as the First World War, which was for those who lived in the southern state, perhaps, too long suppressed in the popular mind and the public memory. The recollection of that terrible conflagration that clash of empires made tangible to new generations the horror and savagery that had befallen a previous generation of Irish men and Irish women, north and south, east and west. Yet, we retain now but few living connections with those events. The last surviving veteran of the War of Independence, Dan Keating, died 11 years ago. Florence Green, last living veteran of the First World War, passed away in 2012. As much as the events of 100 years ago can still evoke profound emotions, the events which we have gathered here this weekend to remember retain so much more in their immediacy and potency, falling as they do within the living memory of so many of the people of Derry, of Northern Ireland and this island, both as witnesses to and agents of history. The deprivation of basic civil rights and economic inequalities, which the civil rights movement sought to end, are thus not only in the realm of public or collective memory, difficult and sometimes amorphous as those concepts may be, but they constitute a living memory of an experience endured by so many. The historical origin of these civic inequalities can be found at the moment of the establishment of the two states on our island. Though all may not agree with the totality of his analysis, there is surely a truth to James Connolly's famous prophecy that a partitioned Ireland would witness a carnival of reaction across the island. And indeed it did. We are only now, in our own times, beginning to confront some residual elements of the full reality of the authoritarian and carceral nature of the free state and its successor, elevating the rights of property and those who held property as it did, even as it diminished women and working-class people. It was, for such people, an exclusionary state. 
the legislative record of the Oireachtas of the 1920s and 1930s, reveals the degree to which rights, so long as in the case of the movements for an inclusive republicanism in past had fought, whether were so intrinsic to the character of many of the earlier cultural movements that had propelled the Irish Revolution, were either ignored, removed, and at least restricted through, for example, the introduction of censorship, the abolition of legal divorce, the prohibition of women sitting on juries, the public service marriage bar, the ban on contraceptives, and the wholesale exclusion from, from, uh, from, by, of women from designated occupations and professions. In its foundational moments, the state in Northern Ireland created its own legislative and institutional inequalities through the gerrymandering of electoral districts, exclusions from government employment, the abuse of the Special Powers Act, and frequent exhortations to exclude members of the Catholic and national communities from even private companies. The Northern Ireland state sustained and deepened these inequalities through the long, difficult years of the Great Depression. Indeed, it was in 1934, in the midst of a debate in Stormont, that Sir James Craig uttered the now fateful phrase, we are a Protestant parliament and a Protestant state. An explicit counterpart, at least, in Craig's mind to what he viewed as the Catholic state in the South. And despite the friendships and conviviality between Protestant and Catholic, between Unionist and Nationalist neighbours, the structural features of the state were in key legislative areas sectarian. Of course, it is important to recognise that neither Catholic and Nationalist nor Protestant and Unionist communities were ever or are monolithic. The history of our island has too often been retold as one of a simple tribalism, reducing all diversity, diverse examples of cooperation and conflict between classes, genders and peoples to a simple binary. And the anti-intellectualism that flowed from this facilitated a hostility, for example, to a politics that might have been based on economic issues, and certainly it was opposed to notions of class conflict, which was rarely allowed into the political discourse. I must admit that this simplistic narrative of binary tribalism has sometimes been found in political expression in the South or in Britain when speeches are made about Northern Ireland. This not only omits and ignores historic and contemporary responsibilities, but can, by ignoring the potential in a pluralist sense for political change and political progress, it can foreclose the immense possibilities for the future. Creating a justified sense of abandonment in Northern Ireland and an atmosphere of political solipsism elsewhere. As Paul Buell and Professor Patterson have demonstrated in their own scholarly work, the intensification of sectarianism in the 1930s was not the result only of communal divisions, but partly the consequence of political calculation on the part of the leaders of unionism, who feared that the cross-class coalition so carefully assembled to oppose home rule in the early 1900s 
would fall asunder amidst the economic dislocation of the 1930s. Farther afield, but not that farther afield, John Maynard Keynes was seeking to foresaw what he saw as an ap apocalyptic collapse of capitalism in the absence of a role for the state in relation to the money supply. And when Basil Brooke began what would be a very long career as an MP for his native Fermanagh, he feared that his farming constituents would seek to form their own political movement to oppose the payment of land annuities. If it had commenced that campaign, would its source have had a most unusual genealogy? It was Eamon de Valera's promise to end land annuities, itself borrowed from the Republican Socialist Padre O'Donnell, that had propelled Fianna Fáil to electoral victory in the general election of 1932. Those connections tell us something of the complexity of the politics of class, religion and nation on our island. Yet for all such unusual cross-fertilisation of ideas, a product of hundreds of years of shared institutions, the relationship between the two states, despite the initial promise of the Collins-Craig Pact, remained from the 1920s to the 1960s one of mutual, often simmering, suspicion or worse. The enactment of Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution of 1937, though recognised as aspirational by its drafters, nonetheless claimed and envisioned the exercise of sovereignty over the whole island. In codifying a provision which so ignored what we now recognise as the principle of consent, Articles 2 and 3 were immediately seen by the Unionist community as a threat, one that could be and was frequently invoked. But if we were then to have had a space of transcendence in this period, the formation of the United Nations opened up the potential for a new politics of hope and cooperation globally and regionally, not only amidst the ruins of Europe but across our world. The preamble of the United Nations Charter sought to capture the aspiration of the peoples of the world who would starve for independence. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. That larger freedom and the rights necessary to secure it, not just civil rights, but economic and social rights, rights in all their fullness were given legal form, if not juridical form, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, which still stands as one of the great moral achievements of the post-war world. The great question was whether those rights would be vindicated by states throughout the world, whether through regional treaties such as the less radical European Convention on Human Rights with its associated court, or by member states directly. In Britain, a Labour government sought to pursue what the socialist Harold Lasky termed a revolution by consent, by banishing what the liberal William Beveridge had called the five giants of want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. The building of this new Jerusalem could find to its own echoes in the French Fourth Republic and the Federal Republic of Germany. The Keynesian welfare state, committed to full employment, albeit on the model of the male breadwinner, and the collective provision of universal services, 
would have a transformative effect on the society of Northern Ireland. The National Health Service, one of the greatest accomplishments anywhere of the last century, and one of the most practical examples of solidarity, was established in Northern Ireland, while the extension of free education enabled a remarkable generation of leaders and writers to proceed on to secondary education in this city. Ivan Cooper, John Hume, Bernadette McAliskey, Eamon McCann, Seamus Dean, Seamus Amy, and so many more. So let us recall that these transformative developments were not mirrored south of the border. The modest extension of free and universal health care to mothers and to children under 16 was denounced as creeping socialism and stalled for five years, resisted by both Catholic hierarchy and more consequentially, the medical profession. That such opposition found a sympathetic ear among members of the both communities in Northern Ireland is a reminder, if any were needed, that the division on our island had sources that were not merely a matter of constitutional politics, but of contending social and economic visions, and particularly ideological views on the role of the state. And indeed, the missing debate on the role of the state and the appropriate role of the state in relation to the market are still like some ghost that hovers over our present discourse all over this island. Yet the achievements of the welfare state in Northern Ireland in expanding the reach and scope of economic and social rights serve to magnify the extent of the denial of other fundamental rights, no more so than in this city of Derry. The gerrymandering of electoral districts, the maintenance of the household franchise and of the business franchise in local authority elections, which, let us never forget, also, of course, affected working-class unionists, all conspired against the fundamental democratic principle of one person, one vote. The lack of adequate representation on local authorities, which authorities which, after all, control planning and a certain proportion of housing provision, let a long waiting list for homes and massive overcrowding. <coughs> this was most evident in what was then the south ward of this city. In the 1960s, as many as 26 people were recorded as living in two rooms in a condemned house in Walker Square. This discrimination could also be seen in the imbalance in regional economic policy. Unemployment was consistently higher here in Derry than in the northeast and it was emphasised by gender division. And despite all the promise of the new regionalism of Harold Wilson's government in London in 1964, and Terence O'Neill's enthusiastic support of economic and social development, the locus of infrastructure development, whether in new housing, new industry, or in education, seemed to be firmly outside Derry. I recognise that it is difficult for people who've lived their lives in the South to sufficiently understand the sense of helplessness created, experienced by the nationalist community in Northern Ireland in the pre- and post-war years. The anti-partition rhetoric and initiatives of the Southern state, which let us recognise simply ignored any principle of consent, seemed to provoke fear among the unionist community, creating an image of a threatening irredentist threat. 
That was a fear that seemed to be confirmed by the IRA border campaign of 1956-1962, which ended with the internment of hundreds of young men north and south. It was not an entirely barren time. In the Westminster Parliament, a small Friends of Ireland group on the Labour backbenches sought to exert their influence in favour of civil rights, despite their 13 years of opposition. The Northern Ireland Labour Party emerged as an advocate not only for the expansion of the welfare state into economic planning, but from 1958 as a voice for human and civil rights in the Parliament of Northern Ireland. While the tentative rapprochement between the two states that is symbolised by the two meetings between Taoiseach Sean Lamas and Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Tennyson did not yield immediate results for people north or south, it did indicate some softening of stances. Those in Northern Ireland who sought to rectify injustice, however, would look first to themselves for their inspiration and strength and seek to draw from the other great movements for freedom and justice across the world. As you've already heard, in May 1963, brave young women in Dungannon began a protest outside the offices of the Urban District Council demanded a fair allocation of housing. Their demands were not narrow, but universal, and their cry for justice echoed those had, that had been uttered from the Carolinas to Florida. One of their posters read, Racial discrimination in Alabama hits Dungannon. They were organised by the Homeless Citizens League, established by two remarkable citizens, Con and Patricia McCluskey, it was the McCluskeys who established the Campaign for Social Justice to catalogue and disseminate an accurate statistical portrait of the allocation of unemployment and housing, which revealed, of course, the deep-seated discrimination against Catholics. And this is a most important lesson, really, in a world that yields only slowly and painfully to change. To right an injustice, they told us, it must first be described quantified and brought to the attention of world opinion. And when Jerry Fitt was elected then as the MP for West Belfast in 1966, he used his maiden speech to demand in his words true democracy on these islands. He found a sympathetic audience for the Campaign for Social Justice and other groups, and those other groups had succeeded in securing the support of many Labour backbenchers who now formed a campaign for Ulster democracy group. They asked, and may I say the phrasing reflects the patient, perhaps even far too slow transition from an imperial to a post-imperial mindset, how the British government could allow the government of Northern Ireland, in their words, to operate a franchise system that no British government would consider for any independent Commonwealth state. The new Labour MPs of the 1966 intake were, in Harold Wilson's own words, and Lord Dobbs will remember this, a new and irreverent generation challenging everything, willing finally to hear the voices of the people of Northern Ireland. And it is a reminder, of course, of a noble tradition of parliamentary agitation and of the responsibility of those at the heart of power to declare their solidarity. After all, let us remember an Iron Bevan's condemnation 
in relation to the Suez issue, the squalid and trivial ends of the Suez invasion. Yet however important the solidarity of backbenchers and Westminsters may have been, it could be no substitute for participatory politics sourced in the people. And that need was met by the formation of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, whose leadership came from a diverse and broad cross-section of backgrounds, including Catholics and Protestants, Nationalists, Socialists, Unionist Republicans, Northern Ireland Labour Party members, Liberals, Communists, and Trade Unionists. I think, though they're diverse in their backgrounds, they were all united in their determination to combat the deep inequalities which scarred Northern Ireland. Inequalities in housing, voting and policing. And their early campaigns focused not only on discrimination against the Catholic community, but also, for example, the travelling community. I spoke of the diverse diversity of their membership when I gave one of the John Hewitt, wonderful John Hewitt memorial lectures. The association demanded the principle of one person, one vote. An end to gerrymandering, elimination of discrimination in the allocation of government jobs and housing, the repeal of the Special Powers Act, and the disbandment of the Ulster Special Constabulary. With all the distance in time, these demands now seem not radical, but rather modest, constituting no more than, as one of the slogans of the day put it, British rights for British citizens. On the ground, in communities across Northern Ireland, people had already begun to take action. In early 1967, Austin Curry, as a Member of Parliament for West Tyrone in the Northern Ireland Parliament, spoke of the growing frustration and desperation as young homeless Catholic families were forced to squat, and as he put it, of more acts of civil disobedience, more emphasis on other means, and less on traditional political means, and on the importance of that. And in June 1968, Austin Curry and a group of brave citizens occupied social housing in Caledon to protest the local authorities' discriminatory approach to allocating homes, one of the first major interventions of the civil rights movement into the public consciousness. On the 24th of August 1968, Curry and the Civil Rights Association organised a march between Coal Island and Dungan on the 24th of August 1968 to protest the local authorities' discriminatory approach in the allocation of social housing. Hundreds of marchers proceeded to Dungannon in an echo of the great marches undertaken by the civil rights movement in the United States, only to be met by police barricades and counter-protesters. Despite the provocation, the association insisted on, in the words of its chairperson, whom I remember very well, Betty Sinclair, she said, we are showing the world that we are a peaceful people, asking for our civil rights in an orderly manner. However, it would be the march of the 5th of October 1968 here in this city which brought the civil rights movement to the attention of the world. It was, of course, undertaken at the request of the Derry Housing Action Committee. And may I say what an honour it is to hear that some of the members of, the committee are, of that committee are here today. As Fenbaro Dokatik has reminded us, the origins of the committee can be found in February 1968, following a discussion at Derry Corporation's housing department between four women, 
Mrs. McNamee, Dillon, Alford and Quigley, who were living in flats in the Limavady Road and who had been forced to live by candlelight when they found their electricity cut off. Or as they put it in an interview at the time, they've cut off the electric. <laughs> like the Civil Rights Association, the Housing Action Committee was a testament too to the broad church of the Civil Rights Movement with a diverse membership of socialists, republicans, labour activists, trade unions, including, of course, Finn Barrett-Orkathy, Eamon Maylock and Eamon McCann. Like all those who viewed them on the relatively new and exciting medium of television, I can still recall the images of that civil rights march of the 5th of October, the baton charge by the police on Duke Street, the kicking and punching of protesters, and I remember reading contemporary reports on the intimidation of photographers and cameramen documenting the attack. I think, does this not also illustrate something that is useful for us? We can see how the form and the method of a reaction to proscribed action has such a significant part in the history of Ireland. It is the reaction which generates, as it were, very often the nature of the subsequent events. The images profoundly shocked people across Ireland, Britain and the wider world, and instantly linked in the minds of many who saw them the struggle for civil rights in Northern Ireland to the other great movements for freedom, democracy and social justice that were taking place across the world connecting Derry to Paris, Rome, Berlin, Prague, Mexico City, Warsaw, Cairo. Three British Labour Party MPs, Russell Kerr, his wife Anne and John Ryan, had answered the call and were standing close to Jerry Fitt when he was struck by police officers. The 5th of October, that march galvanised the movement for civil rights in Ireland. In the days which followed civil rights groups in Derry City, merged to form the Derry Citizens Action Committee. Its first chairperson was, of course, Ivan Cooper. And I add my own thanks, uh, as President of Ireland, to, to Ivan for the courage, the leadership and the dedication to the cause of justice, justice in all its forms, that he has demonstrated in his life. The Vice Chair of the Committee... The Vice Chair of the Committee was another remarkable servant of the people of the island of Ireland, of whom I have a word to say in just a moment, John Hume. On the 9th of October, October 3,000 students from Queen's University gathered to march on Belfast City Hall to demonstrate their solidarity with the civil rights movement in Derry. They were halted by counter-demonstrators and returned to the campus, where after an open debate that was in the best traditions of that atmosphere of 1968, they resolved to establish people's democracy, and not only to join the civil rights movement in their own right, but to advocate for a radical transformation of society. Which reminds me of that quotation of Arendt that I had at the very beginning, that the purpose of doing ethical commemoration 
should be to be emancipatory and facilitate the transformation of society. Seamus Heaney was then in his third year as a lecturer in modern English literature, and he wrote, I quote him, of the embarrassed, indignant young Ulster men and women whose deep-grained conservatism of behaviour was outweighed by a reluctant recognition of injustice. In its ambition, in its courage, in its radicalism, the student movement that emerged from Belfast exceeded the gentle revolution experienced by, for example, in the halls of University College Dublin. Its bravery in the face of police brutality and intimidation, for so many, symbolised, for example, in the person of Bernadette Macaliski. Neither threats of violence nor invocation of the Special Powers Act could dissuade the 15,000 who mobilised in Derry on the 16th of November, overshadowing by far the numbers who had faced the battens just over a month previously. The reform package announced in that year by the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, at the end of November 1968, while it did not deliver on all demands of the civil rights campaigners, it did demonstrate that peaceful and nonviolent protest could force a reaction in Northern Ireland. The temporary replacement of Derry Corporation with the Development Commission, the appointment of an ombudsman to investigate complaints against government departments, the introduction of a points-based system in the allocation of social housing on the basis of need, as well as some reform of local government franchise, all pointed to the possibilities and potential of the civil rights movement. We must recognise, however, that Terence O'Neill made this decision not only because of the activism of the civil rights movement, although it was decisive, nor simply because of the pressure from the British government and its official opposition, as important as that was. He and some of his colleagues did so because there were some within official unionism who recognised a historical wrong and were moved to write it. Two days before the great march of the 16th of November, Terence O'Neill circulated a frank letter from Edmund Warnock, a former Attorney General, and a party grandee, as it were, which stated bluntly, I quote, if ever a community had a right to demonstrate against a denial of civil rights, Derry is the finest example. A Roman Catholic and nationalist city has for three or four decades been administered, and none too fairly administered, by a Protestant and Unionist majority secured by manipulation of the ward boundaries for the sole purposes of retaining control. Dear friends, although rooted in the soil of the North and summoned to confront the structural inequalities within the society of Northern Ireland, the civil rights movement we must never forget. In that year of 68 was part of a global struggle for human rights, a vision of human rights that extended beyond personal or individual rights, that stretched something we've found so difficult to establish, that stretched to collective rights, to shared rights. And as Eamon McCann has recalled, the overriding slogan of 1968 was, one world, one struggle. In the United States, the movement for civil rights in the southern states, for the abolition of Jim Crow, had widened to encompass a demand for social and economic rights, and for an end to the war of Vietnam. And Martin Luther King Jr., in the last years of his life, was invoking a new global solidarity. 
And as to that connection, the American civil rights movement, John Hume has written, gave birth to ours. So much of the iconography, the tactics, and of course the songs are symbolic of a shared universal struggle against oppression. Above all, the centrality of nonviolence that was neither passive nor quiescent, but willing when necessary to defy the forces of the state in the streets while refraining from conflict. Nonviolence, far more than violence, requires a different, a deeper courage, both moral and physical, and fortitude too. I can recall reading the reports of a burnt olive bridge, and I know that there are some in this room who were on the long march to Derry and may recall the sheer bravery that was required to undertake and encounter, experience such an endeavour. Change is never linear. After 1968, while 68 itself was a moment of emancipation and liberation, yet in the global south, some of the heroes of the earlier struggle against colonialism had changed and were now halting the march of others towards freedom. In February 1968, for example, the students and workers' movement in Egypt demonstrated for days, demanding the civil liberties and democratic government so long promised but so long delayed by President Nasser. In the days immediately before the 5th of October march here in Derry, several hundred students were massacred in Mexico City as they protested against the suppression of trade unions and democratic rights. And in the global north, even amidst the triangulates of the capitalist world and the relatively oppressive stability of the Eastern Bloc, people young and old were imagining new emancipatory possibilities. In May 1968, student protesters in the Sorbonne, dismissed by French ministers as the mere outburst of libertines, spread across France to become a two-week general strike as millions of workers seized factories in an explosion of, as the students put it, of imagination and hope. And in August 1968, the people of Prague took part in hundreds of acts of non-violent resistance against a Soviet invasion designed to crush the liberalizing initiatives of the Czech government. On campuses across Europe, millions discussed tactics some of them were discussing alliances, and those others, maybe of delicious tendencies, would talk of those who had read and not read Althusser. At a time when the old forces of reaction, long since thought buried in the ruins of European history, are now emerging, and when the economic and political dogmas of the past 40 years, the extreme valorization of the market, pre-Keynes, and of the individual, are at the moment fraying with every passing day. It is good to recall the emancipatory potential of that year of 1968. The utopian vision and the belief in the capacity of nonviolent political movements to achieve transformative change are required now more than ever. Not only to confront the persistence of racism, inequality and injustice, not only to stand for the dignity and rights of every human being, but also to confront the great new challenges of the coming century. Addressing climate change, ensuring sustainable development for all people, will require the vindication of old rights and the winning of new ones. Above all, it will require a new spirit of global solidarity, 
something like that same spirit and qualities that were demonstrated by the civil rights movement of 50 years ago. I call to yield, dear friends. I'm deeply conscious that I'm speaking to so many who have a direct memory of the civil rights movement, to many who forged the movement and who took part in its formative events. I am conscious, too, of the words of Seamus Dean's narrator in reading in the dark, the troubles came in October 1968, placing the assault by the RUC and the Civil Rights March in Duke Street at the very beginning of that which is often referred to as the troubles. Others cite the police incursion into the bauxite that followed the conclusion of the Long March, or the events now known as the Battle of Bauxite in August 1969. Still others would point to the most fateful IRA convention of December 1969. They share an emphasis on a reaction that included state violence. Before the Good Friday Agreement, that conversation of that confrontation of interpretations was fraught. But perhaps now in this, the 20th year of the agreement, a more considered analysis is possible, given the political consequences are diminished. Four years ago, the BBC broadcast a series of int if interviews that Eamon Malley conducted with Ian Paisley, which were and there were quite remarkable. At one point, Eamon asked Ian Paisley whether he thought the historic denial of one person, one vote in Northern Ireland was fair. And Ian Paisley replied, no, but that's the way it was. The whole system was wrong. It wasn't one man, one vote. I mean, that's no way to run any country. There should be absolute freedom and there should be absolute liberty. That such an unlikely source ultimately recognised it ever so retrospectively, the innate justice of the aims of the civil rights movement, while he, at the same time maintaining some reservations, is a vindication, though I recognise that it is not without its irony. That such a statement was even possible, however, is a testament to the achievement of the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement embedded the demands of the civil rights movement through the incorporation of the European Convention of Human Rights into the law of Northern Ireland. Respect for fundamental human rights does not supplant deeply held convictions regarding the constitutional arrangements under which people wish to live, and neither do they require a negation of the legitimate and differing national aspirations held by the peoples of Northern Ireland in their diversity. And we need to defend these rights, indeed extend their social and economic reach, rather than acquiescing in any of their limitation, or indeed even worse, their loss. However, the Good Friday Agreement demonstrates that a shared commitment to universal human rights, to equal treatment, to parity of esteem, can facilitate the creation of a shared space, one capable of accommodating different aspirations, one in which it is possible to imagine and shape a future of hope and possibility. And if we are to succeed in that endeavour, and we must, we should recall the animating spirit of the civil rights movement and remember that the concept of human rights must now encompass the right to decent work, to social protection, to security from fear of insufficient provision in the basic areas of health and housing and education. Accord. All great movements of thought and action find their origin in the courage, bravery and leadership 
of citizens working together as a collective. It can be difficult to highlight the efforts of any one woman or man for fear of occluding the efforts of others. Yet as I stand in this building in this city, I do want to pay tribute to the life and work of one man who does so strongly symbolise the efforts to bring peace to our island, John Hume. The civil... Yes, the civil rights movement was that crucible from which John Hume emerged as a national and international politician. He dedicated his political life to realising its programme and later its wider emancipatory potential. Sometimes I fear, and I know this fear is quite widely held, that the contribution of John Hume and his dogged persistence on the possibilities of dialogue through the dark twilight years of the trouble might be eclipsed amidst the disputations of the contemporary moment as to appropriate historiography. Not only would that be a distortion of history, it would be unjust. His achievement in cultivating, for example, the interest and the engagement of politicians in the United States, and not only Irish-American politicians, has been brought to new light by Morris Fitzpatrick's remarkable documentary, John Hume in America, which I know was shown in the Playhouse yesterday evening. Perhaps less recognised is his role in persuading, even forcing the administrative and political elite of the southern state to renew their engagement with Northern Ireland and to put aside sometimes unhelpful and inflammatory rhetoric. So as we assemble today, let us above all recall the vision of John Hume so rooted in the experience of the civil rights movement, of a shared island, one that recognises the unionist and nationalist traditions, one that is capable of reconciling communities, one that north and south preserves human dignity and vindicates and expands fundamental human rights in the economic, cultural and social affairs. And if we remain true to that vision, we can only, not only sustain peace in our island, but we can together confront the shared, the shared challenges of the future with confidence and courage. And I end by saying this. While commemoration is always, as I have observed, a process of selective remembering, ethical commemoration is that which seeks to respect context and complexity, as well as the agency and the integrity of the motivations of the men and women from the past. The ethics of commemoration also entail an openness to the dissonant voices and stories of the other, the stranger, the enemy of yesterday, but the partner of tomorrow. Mila Buikas, thank you.